0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church Located in Charleston, South Carolina For more information about Grace on the Ashley Visit graceontheashley.org I'd invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 5 this morning Before i get into the text this morning i want to mention something to you i had the opportunity yesterday morning to fill in for pastor joe mulroney at uh, in preaching at vertical church charleston pastor joe filled in for me a a number of weeks ago you maybe you were here when he uh, delivered a a wonderful message on prayer but uh, vertical church is a a church that we've uh, sort of partnered with in various ways we've sponsored them into the charleston baptist association and for the last number of years, been sort of uh, a side, uh, side partners with them, helping them establish and uh, giving them use of our facility and various other ways that we've supported them. And I just wanted to tell you that yesterday, uh, going and, and, and preaching in their service and being with them for worship, before and after, I was literally inundated with, with different folks from the churches coming up to me and, uh, and personally wanting to express their gratitude, not uh, really to you, and to our church for the ways we've cared for them and 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 really just shown love to them by allowing them to use our gym allowing them to have their student ministry out in the chapel out front giving pastor joe a place to park an office and things like that uh so i I just wanted to be sure and express that to you because literally person after person after person uh, came up to me to to say that and uh, they wanted that message delivered to you so I have dutifully delivered it to you this morning So let's turn to Luke chapter 5 And we're going to look this morning At verse 27 through verse 32 Beginning in verse 37, Luke records this He says, after this, he, that's Jesus Went out and saw a tax collector named Levi Sitting at a tax booth And he said to him, follow me And leaving everything, he rose and followed him And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at at the table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous. But sinners to repentance. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. If you've been with us, we've been walking through for a number of weeks now the gospel of Luke, and Luke in this particular section in chapter 5 of his gospel has been laying out for us progressively a picture of what saving faith looks like. He's been giving it to us bit by bit, piece by piece, and his way of giving it to us has been by giving us snapshots into the life and ministry of Jesus. He sort of transported us into these moments in time where certain things happened in the, the life and ministry of Jesus, and he selects these events and he puts them together in the order that he does because he wants us to see a picture of what saving faith looks like, what it looks like to trust Jesus, what it looks like to be a Christian, what it looks like to be saved. And so he's been giving this, this picture progressively. And three weeks ago, we, we, we saw uh, a snapshot of Jesus by the Sea of Galilee with Peter and some other fishermen in a boat doing a miraculous catch in the middle of the Sea of Galilee at the wrong time of day. And and in showing us that picture, Luke has given us a glimpse of Jesus' power to save. He wants us to understand through that that Jesus is God in human flesh, that he's all-powerful, that he can do all things, that he can do all things both in the natural world and in the spiritual realm, and he has the power to make fish, and he has the power to save. And then immediately following that two weeks ago, we, we, we saw a different snapshot. We saw Jesus encounter a man who Luke describes as full of leprosy, a diseased, outcast man. And, and, and Luke shares that story with us because having established Jesus' power to save, he wanted us to understand that not only does Jesus have the power to save, but he has a heart to save, that he's willing to save. And the question that was raised in that particular encounter was, not does Jesus have the power to save, but will he save? Will he save a a, a diseased outcast that everybody else rejects? And the answer was a resounding yes. Not only does Jesus have the power to save people, but he has a willing heart to save anybody who will come before him and bow before his lordship. They'll never be turned away. And then last week, We saw another encounter, an encounter Jesus had with a paralyzed man and his friends who who were trying to bring this paralyzed man to Jesus and couldn't get through the crowd, and so they busted up the roof of the house and lowered him down right in front of Jesus. And we saw Jesus tell a paralyzed man to get up and pick up his mat and walk home. But that's not all that we saw. We heard him say, before we heard him say, get up and take your mat, we heard him say to this man, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. So not only does Luke want us to understand that Christ has the power to save, not only does he want us to understand that he's willing to save anybody, no matter who they are, who'll come to him and bow before his lordship, but he wants us to understand that saving faith involves forgiveness of sins. It's not just about healing the body, it's about healing the soul. That the worst disease that a paralyzed man had was not his paralysis of his body, it was the the paralysis of his soul because of his sin. And Christ was able to heal that as well. And so saving faith involves the forgiveness of sin. And today, Luke gives us another layer to this. He continues on that issue of what kind of people did Christ come to save? And the answer we're going to see today is the kind of people he came to save sinners he came to save sinners he came to save rebels he came to save bad people who are willing to repent he didn't come primarily for good people he came primarily for bad people he didn't come for people who have everything together in their lives and are super religious he came to seek out and to find the worst the sinners the rebels and somebody might ask a question well, how bad of a sinner is he willing to forgive? That's a legitimate question. How bad of a sinner is Christ willing to forgive? That's why Luke wants you and I to meet a man named Levi, because he wants us to understand that the answer to that question is Jesus is willing to forgive the worst sinner you can imagine. That's exactly who this man Levi is that he introduces us to in verse 27. He simply says to us, and after this, Jesus went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Now, this man named Levi is not the man for for whom the jeans are named. He's a different Levi altogether. I don't know who that Levi is, but he was probably a sinner too. But regardless, this Levi was not a maker of, of pants, he was a tax collector. We don't know a whole lot about him. Luke simply gives us here a timestamp that says after this. It's it's really imprecise. If we compare the other gospel writers, we find that Mark tells us that this event happened again near Capernaum, a place where Jesus has been working around the Sea of Galilee during this, this whole season of his life in ministry. And so again, we've got Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee toward Capernaum, and this event takes place there. He sees a tax collector named Levi. We don't know a whole lot about Levi. We know his name. His name here is, is Levi, but his name isn't only Levi. He's a man who had two names. He had the name Levi, and he was also called Matthew. Over in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, which is the gospel book that he eventually authors, He records this same event this way. He says as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Since Matthew wrote the gospel of Matthew, I suspect he probably knew his own name, and so he identifies himself as Matthew, but Luke and others also knew him as Levi. It was not uncommon for people to have two names. Simon Peter was a man who also had two names. It's probably likely that, that Levi was his Jewish name and that, that Matthew was more of his Roman name. It's also possible that Jesus gave him the name Matthew, much like he gave Simon the name Peter. In either case, when you see Levi, just think Matthew. It's the same individual. And every one of the lists of the 12 apostles, he's called Matthew. But here, He's called Levi, so we'll call him that today. So we know that's his name. Mark tells us that he is the son of Alphaeus, so his dad's name is Alphaeus. We don't know anything about Alphaeus, so that doesn't really help us much. We also know from reading his gospel that he's a humble man. We know that because he writes a very lengthy account of the life and ministry of Jesus, and he only mentions his own name twice. It's when he records this event, and it's when he lists the 12 apostles. He lists his own name, but he says nothing about himself. His heart and his focus is only on Christ. We know that he knew the Old Testament pretty well because his gospel, compared to the other gospel writers, he quotes the Old Testament by far more than any of the others. So it's clear that the Old Testament was important to him and it was fresh in his mind. You might raise the question as we walk through this this morning, how did that become the case? But that's another question altogether. But he was a humble man, he, was, he knew his Old Testament, but what we know most about him, what he's most known for is he was a tax collector. Now let me just take a raise, uh, do a little quick poll here, a, a spot poll in the church on Sunday morning, okay? I want you to answer honestly to me this morning. How many of you enjoy paying taxes? Go ahead, just put your hand up, you love it, you can't wait for April the 15th to come around, you look forward to that, to that check that you write. Nobody likes to pay taxes, do they? Nobody likes to pay taxes today. Nobody likes to pay taxes in the first century either. And if you were a first century Jew, you particularly hated taxes. Because it was a reminder to you that you were not a part of your own independent nation, that God's people didn't have their own land, and they didn't have their own nation, that they were subject to a, a, a pagan nation, the Roman Empire. And so they hated paying taxes to Caesar They had this image of the Old Testament when Israel was a theocracy and they never paid taxes to anybody. Their giving all went through the the church, if you will, and that was their their free will giving to operate the, the ministry and the religious operation of the nation, but it also was their taxation as well that funded the nation. So they resented paying taxes to Rome and it becomes an issue all throughout the Gospels. We'll see it pop up time and time again. At the time of of Christ and at the time that that Luke records these things, Israel is under Roman domination and the Roman system had a a very extensive taxation system. They had all sorts of taxes that people had to pay. Common taxes, things like a poll tax, which you just paid if you were an adult and that was a tax you paid just for the privilege of breathing in the Roman Empire. So you got to pay a tax for that because you exist. You also had to pay an income tax. We're pretty familiar with income taxes and it worked somewhat similar. You paid taxes on your land as well. Those were fairly fixed sort of taxes that were fairly standard and fairly expected, but they had a whole host of other taxes that they levied on people, more like duties that were on all sorts of different parts of, of your life and in, in your, your operation. Uh, day-to-day. They had duties that were levied on using roads. You had to pay a duty for that. You had to pay a tax for using the harbor. You had to pay a tax to to buy and sell in the market. You had to pay taxes to import and export anything. There were those and a number of other kinds of, of, of smaller, simpler taxes or what you might call a duty that were levied. And these were far less fixed. They were far more flexible in the way they were assessed, if you will. And if you combine that with the fact that they lived in a time where there were no published, you know, sort of published and posted tax tables or tax laws, the average person had absolutely no idea what they actually legitimately owed Rome in taxes. And so you can imagine a system like that was absolutely rife with corruption, right? Absolutely rife with corruption. And at ground level of the corruption were the tax collectors. You see, the way this worked was this. Rome wanted to assess taxes, and so they would uh, uh, sort of evaluate a district, an area of land, and they would assess, they would make an assessment on the kind of, or the amount of taxes that needed to be sent to Rome from that area. And then what they would do is they would put out for bid uh, a tax-collecting franchise, and they would put it out to bid to the highest bidder, and the highest bidder could bid to become a tax collector to have the tax-collecting franchise for that area of land. And often the, the person who would win the, the, the sort of the franchise would then hire other tax collectors, ground level tax collectors, to literally go out and be the ones to collect the tax. But here was the kicker. As long as they sent that assessed amount of money to Rome, they were free to collect anything above that that they wanted to collect from people. And anything they collected above that, guess what they got to do? They kept it. They could keep it for themselves. As you can imagine, this whole thing became a a massive extortion scheme, right? Where you have tax collectors who could go around and literally assess whatever they wanted. People had no idea what they actually owed. And so when the tax collector came, al- came along, he could assess to you whatever was his fancy for the day. You had no idea what it actually owed to Rome or what had been paid or what you had paid. You were just obligated to pay whatever he assessed. And if you didn't like that, you could resist. But they also had, normally, some armed thugs around with them to enforce... At the point of a sword, you're paying your taxes. They could literally stop a man on the road and collect taxes. They could stop a man with a horse and buggy going on the road and they could tax his cart and they could tax every wheel on the cart and they could tax the animal who's pulling the cart. They could make him unbundle his bundle of stuff and assess what he has with him and levy taxes on those things as well. If that wasn't bad enough, they had another scheme going on. If you couldn't afford to pay the tax that they assessed, they also acted as loan sharks. Isn't that awesome? They would happily loan you the money to pay the taxes. Of course, you'd have to pay exorbitant interest to accept that loan. As you can imagine, this was an incredibly lucrative business. If you were a tax collector, you were wealthy. Tax collectors were rich. They were rich because they were thieves that assessed more than what people owed and they kept the balance for themselves. They got rich by robbing other people with government approval. I know, we can't can't understand that. We have no context for that today, right? I understand. It's not the same. Nothing even remotely related to that happens. The people who make the tax laws here don't somehow get rich while making the laws. But that's another story. So we can address that a different day. But you can understand what a system this was, was and what a racket it was. But these were incredibly wealthy men, but their wealth came at a tremendous cost. They were also some of the vilest, low-life scoundrels in the whole community. That's who tax collectors were. They were essentially professional thieves is what they were. They were professional thieves who, who had very little conscience, at least it seemed like that on the outside. They were not good people. They were bad, bad people. They cared about themselves and they cared about getting rich. That's about the only thing they cared about. And they would do whatever it took to make that reality come to pass. As a result of all that, tax collectors, as you can imagine, were some of the most hated people in the community. People hated tax collectors. They hated the dirt that these men walked on they were despised they were the lowest of the low in the jewish in jewish society they were they were viewed as traitors because they had partnered with rome to to sort of bilk their own people they were they were viewed as unclean because of their partnership with gentiles and and people who hated god they were seen as thieves and liars they were banned from the synagogues they couldn't testify in court because they were known liars Basically in the community They had the same level of respectability As prostitutes That's where they ranked And dignified people Spiritual people Godly people Would have nothing to do With a tax collector Ever in a million years Any more than they would have to do with a prostitute And this man Levi they were introduced to Is one of these tax collectors That's who he is Of all of Jesus' 12 disciples, I can't imagine that there was one that Jesus called who was more of a vile man than Levi. Who was more of a vile sinner, at least in a public sense, than Levi. That's what he was. He was a tax collector, and he was sitting in his tax booth, collecting taxes, robbing people. When one day Jesus comes by, he comes by, now, Matthew would have likely been familiar with Jesus. Jesus had been moving around this area quite frequently during this time of his ministry. And stories were circulating all around about what Jesus was saying and what he had been doing, the miracles he had been doing, the message he had been delivering. He's attracting crowds from all over the place. And Jesus himself and his disciples are moving about. Matthew, a tax collector, would have been at a, an important crossroads there where people traveled back and forth. So he would have seen Jesus. He would have heard Jesus. He would have certainly heard about him. And so he was familiar with Jesus. He wasn't a stranger to him. And so this particular day, it, Luke simply tells us Jesus is coming by like he probably had on many other occasions, Matthew's tax booth. But on this particular day, it's different. Because on this particular day, Luke tells us that Jesus saw Levi. He saw him. And it doesn't mean that he noticed him for the first time or that he had a, just a mere quick glance. The word here that she uses, a word that that means an intent, contemplative gaze. That means Jesus stopped on the road, and he locked eyes with Matthew, with Levi, while he's sitting in his tax booth, and he looked into his heart and into his soul. You ever had somebody stop and stare at you for a lengthy period of time? Does it make you uncomfortable? When somebody's staring at you, like, I remember when I was a kid, I'd say that to my mom, "Why why are you looking at me? Why are you staring at me? probably my own guilty conscience but it's what Jesus he stops and he just looks him in the eyes he just looks him in the eyes and he captures his attention now Jesus has likely got a crowd around him when all this is going on and not only does he look at him does he stop you can just kind of see the whole caravan moving and you can see them going by the tax collector booth and Jesus stopping and the crowd stopping and Jesus looking at this man and just staring him in the eyes And then he opens his mouth, and he speaks to this tax collector. For a Jewish rabbi to speak to a tax collector, that would have been absolutely scandalous. That would have been a a jaw-dropping moment. People would have said, what in the world is going on? Have you ever had moments in life when you're just going about your normal everyday life and something out of the blue just happens, and you find yourself going, what in the world is going on? I didn't see that coming. I was in the DMV two weeks ago, that's enough right there probably to tell you where this story's going. But I had gone there and I had gone through the, the snake line to uh, get to the receptionist who you go to and she's behind the plexiglass. You give her your driver's license. She takes it, scans it, gives you your number, you know, A321 to go sit and, and wait until it's your turn to be helped. And so I'm just daydreaming. It's my, just, you know, my mind's in outer space. I'm doop de doo you know, through the line. I get there, I hand her my, my thing, she takes it, and I just happen to notice something doesn't look right about her. And so I just simply said to her for some reason, ma'am, are you okay? At which point she attempts to reply to me, yes, I'm okay. But before she could get okay out of her mouth, she literally dropped to the floor, went under her desk, and starts just vomiting in her trash can. That's exactly what I thought. Here I am at the window going, what just happened? I'm just here for the DMV to try and transfer my tag. That's all I'm here for. And this woman just hits the floor and she's under the desk and all I can see is her feet and, and the place is packed and I'm looking around and I'm like, does anybody else know what's going on here? Because nobody else can see her. Well, it was a whole tale after that, but she, she, she was fine, I'm told, uh, after the fact. But sometimes things happen that you just don't expect and it captures your attention. And on this particular day, jesus the rabbi stopping and speaking to a tax collector in his tax booth would have been far more shocking would have been far more shocking and it wasn't shocking enough that he spoke to him it's what he said to him that's even more shocking he says simply one thing to him follow me follow me that's it that's all he says to him follow me The word follow is, is the the, the Greek verb tense here is a present active imperative, which just simply means he's he's telling him to do something that has an immediate impact, but it has also a continuing impact. What Jesus is calling him to do is to do something immediately in the moment, but he's calling him to do something immediately that he's gonna continue to do in the future. He's calling him to, to, to step away from his life of sin and to become a follower of Jesus. He's calling him to a whole new life. This would have been absolutely unbelievable. A rabbi calling a tax collector to come be one of his disciples? Nobody would have done that. People would have been stunned. They would have been speechless. They probably would have been a bit furious at this whole event. And among everybody else, Levi himself probably was absolutely stunned. Because Levi knows custom as well. He knows who he is. He has a sense for who Jesus is that this holy man of God would look at him and say, follow me. Follow me. It must have stunned him. Levi's entire life up to this point had involved following his own sinful ambitions. All he'd wanted up to this point is to be rich. All he'd wanted up to this point was to have material possessions. All he'd wanted up to this point was to pursue status and importance and wealth. And that's exactly what he had done. And Jesus comes along and he says, Follow me. He says, Matthew, I want you to abandon all of that and I want you to come follow me. Matthew, I want you to leave behind your sinful lifestyle. I want you to leave behind your sinful ambitions. I want you to walk away from the only life you've known and I want you to follow me, become my disciple. Follow after me. Wherever I go, you go. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? A man like Levi would have been seen as someone who was far beyond redemption. Nobody would have even bothered. But Jesus isn't like everybody else. He goes to the worst of the worst and he says to them, follow me. Come follow me. You can be more than what you are. Come follow me. If that wasn't stunning enough, Levi's response is far more stunning. Matt Luke tells us this. He says, he left everything and he followed him. Can you imagine? This whole thing, people are going, what in the world is happening right now? Jesus is speaking to this man, and he calls him to follow him. Surely he's not going to do it. Not somebody like Levi. There's no way in the world he's going to leave all that wealth. There's no way he's going to leave that tax collecting gig that everybody else envies. No no way in the world he's going to walk away from all that. And Levi looks at his job and he looks at Jesus and he looks at his money and he looks at Jesus and he looks at his tax ledger and he looks at Jesus and he simply stands up, he walks out of the booth, he leaves it all behind and he follows Jesus. What? What in the world? Jesus broke this man's bondage to money and he offered him something better and Matthew was able to see it. He was able to see it. And once he walked away from that tax booth, you need to understand he could never go back. That was a permanent move on his part. It wasn't like a fishing gig, you know, where you could go back to fishing if you got bored with the other. When you walk away from the tax booth, that's it. There's no going back to that life. Why would somebody like Levi walk away from all that and follow Jesus? Why would he do that? Well, we can answer it a couple ways. At one level, we know that the Spirit of God was drawing him. The Spirit of God was working inside Levi. He was doing something inside his heart to open his eyes to the reality of who Jesus was, to the reality of his own sinful lifestyle, and was drawing him to the Lord. But at another level, Matthew knew he was a violent, sinful man. He knew that about himself. He had a conscience, God had made him with a conscience. And every, every sinner knows at some level in their heart that they are in rebellion against their maker. Even the, most, even the most macho and rambunctious and bold sinner out there, when he or she puts their head on the pillow at night and it's just them and the ceiling, they know at heart that they're not right with God. And they know that their sin is sin and it's wrong. And this man understood those things about himself. He'd heard stories of Jesus healing. He had heard stories of Jesus forgiving other people. And Jesus comes and gives him the opportunity to be forgiven, to get a fresh start. He jumps up out of his chair and he goes after Jesus. My friends, this is a biblical picture of repentance. That's the, that's the churchy word for what happens to Levi. It's a word that simply means to turn. It's a word that simply means to turn and go a different direction. And that's precisely what Levi did. Up to this point in his life, he had been running hard in one direction, pursuing his own sinful lifestyle for his whole adult life. And in this moment, when Jesus says, follow me, he makes a decision, an important decision, to do a 180-degree turn in his life and to walk away from all that and to begin pursuing Jesus Christ. That is repentance. It's not a hard concept. It's easy to understand, but it's not always easy to do. I can remember as a seven-year-old, a little boy going to church, that a guest preacher had come and he had presented the gospel and I had responded to his gospel invitation. I knew I needed to be saved and I, I remember coming down the aisle in the church, that's the way he did it in those days, and I was ushered to another room and there was a lady named Edna, Edna who, who just somebody like you, a, a church member, a volunteer, who who, you know, took the seven-year-old little me to, to some other room and began to talk about what does it mean to trust Jesus? What does it mean to, to follow Christ? And I can still remember this. I don't know what I had for lunch yesterday, but I can remember to this day being in a room with Edna, and I remember Edna telling me what repentance meant. And she would have little seven-year-old me, you know, she had me walk this way, and she would say, repent. And when she would say, repent, I would turn around and I'd walk the other way. It was the simplest little thing. I've never forgotten what repentance means because of Edna. It simply means to stop going the direction you're going and to turn and go another way. And that's what Jesus was calling Levi to, and it's exactly what Levi did. He did a 180 degree, it's a clear break with his old life of sin. He doesn't try to bargain with Jesus. He doesn't try to add Jesus on to his already sinful life and try to figure out a way that he can manage the two at the same time. He simply gets up, he turns his back, and he goes. He goes. And that's what repentance looks like. It looks like choosing to walk away from our sin and to pursue Jesus and to follow Jesus and to obey Jesus wherever he takes us. A right relationship with God always involves repentance. It always involves repentance. It always has. All the way back in Isaiah 55, verse 7, here's the word of the Lord. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God who will abundantly pardon. He doesn't use the word repentance there in Isaiah 55, verse 7, but it's the concept, the same. What does a wicked man need to do? He needs to forsake his way. He needs to forsake his sinful thoughts and he needs to return to the Lord so that he can find compassion and so that he can find pardon for his sins. A little later on in Luke's gospel, in chapter 13, verse 3, we're going to hear Jesus say to a group of people, "Unless you repent, you will all perish." Unless you do the same thing that Matthew, the tax collector, did, you'll die in your sins. Second Peter chapter three verse nine, Peter writes, "The Lord is not slow to, for, to fulfill his promises; some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." context there is the return of Christ and people are wondering why Jesus hasn't come back yet it seems like it's been an awful long time the answer is because there are still people who need to repent and he's being patient praise God for the patience of Christ he's willing to wait for our repentance I want you to notice one other thing about this. This call to Matthew was a call to salvation. It was a call to repent of his sin and entrust his life to Christ. But for Matthew, it was more than that. It was a call to permanent ministry. It was a call to leave his career behind and to engage in a whole new life of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a a hard break with his career. We would call that a, 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 a call to vocational ministry. For a tax collector to be saved, he didn't have to leave tax collecting. You could go back rewind in Luke's gospel to back to chapter three, where John the Baptist is preaching. Do you remember when John is preaching by the river and he's calling people to repentance and some tax collectors come and they're asking him, What does it look like for a tax collector to repent? And John's answer isn't you need to quit being a tax collector. John's answer to him is only collect what's due. Stop ripping people off. Be a tax collector who's righteous and only collects what people owe. So that was an option, but that's not an option for Levi. Because God had plans for Levi. He was to become one of the 12 apostles of Christ. God had a ministry for this man. It wasn't just that God would save a vile man like Levi, but he had a plan to make him a church leader. That's almost inconceivable to anybody in the first century. Levi understands it and he walks away from it all. He has no idea what following Jesus is going to look like. He has no idea. Jesus doesn't give him a road map. He doesn't tell him all the details about what that's going to entail. He just simply says, pick up yourself, leave what you're doing, and come after me. And you know what? The Lord Jesus is still calling people to do that. He's still calling men and women to vocational ministry. He's still calling people to pick up life and stop doing what you're doing and make a career out of following him the harvest is still plentiful and the workers are still few there's still a lot of churches that need godly pastors there's still a lot of lost people and unreached people groups in the world that need godly missionaries if you're to go to the Joshua project website you'd find that they report about 3.27 billion people in our world that are still unreached with the gospel of Jesus who's going to go who's going to take the gospel to them there are still teenagers who need godly student ministers. There are still congregations who need gifted musicians to lead music and worship arts and things like that. There are all sorts of ways that the body of Christ needs people to serve vocationally in ministry. And that call looks an awful lot like it looked to Matthew. It's a call that says, come follow me. Stop what you're doing. I've got another plan for your life. You know, I had no, no desire in my life When I sensed God's call to be a pastor, I had no desire to be a pastor. I, in my mind, was convinced I was gonna be a chemical engineer. That's what I was preparing for. I was good at math, I was good at science, I was good at chemistry, I was good at physics. Not so much reading and writing. And horror upon horror is having to stand up in front of other people whose eyes were looking at me and open my mouth and say something. I can remember the fear of sensing God's call in my life, of sensing this call to walk away from what I thought I was supposed to become and to do something altogether different that I felt completely incapable of. And at that point in my life, God gave me no roadmap, just like he didn't give Levi a roadmap. It was just simply a call to say, stop what you're doing and follow me. I'll tell you what you need to know when you need to know it. I'll tell you where you need to go when it's time. Right now, you just need to make the choice going to follow me or are you going to stubbornly do your own thing and I simply bring this up because we don't talk about it often but it might be just possible that God's calling some of you that Jesus is calling some of you to that kind of thing that he's he's engaging you at some level in your heart saying to you you know what what you're doing is not what you're meant for I've got something much bigger for you you need to stop and you need to follow after me Maybe that's vocational ministry. Maybe that's some sort of short-term mission work that God's calling you. But I want to challenge you, if God's calling you to that, be open to it. Don't ask for a roadmap. Don't demand a roadmap. Don't demand all the answers. Just simply respond like Levi. Okay, Lord, I'll go wherever you need me to go. I'll do whatever you need me to do. Well, you would think... uh, that this would be a celebratory time. And it was, at least for Levi. We're told in the next verse, in verse 29, Levi made him a great feast at his house. That's Jesus. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And and I don't want to belabor this point. I've got more to say about this, but I'm going to just move through it quickly. The first act of following Jesus for this man, Levi, was to do what? He He was so amazed at the grace of Jesus that Christ would save him that he absolutely cannot help But find somebody else to tell He can't help it He's got to tell somebody else What's just happened in his life And that's the first thing he does He doesn't require any formal evangelism training He doesn't have to work out all of his theology first He doesn't need to have some extensive training On how to lead other people to Jesus He just knows that he was a sinner And Christ just called him to follow him And it just was a remarkable change in his life And he wanted everybody else that he knew To experience the same thing And so immediately, immediately, he decides that he's got a plan. He throws a house party. I like this guy. He leverages what he's got, right? He's got a house, and he knows people. Why not invite him over for dinner? And so he throws a house party. He's a, he's a wealthy man. He's got a large enough house to have a great feast, and so he leverages what he has. He invites everyone he can, and he, he, here's his plan. Invite everybody I can, and invite Jesus and the disciples, and get them all in the same place, and something good's got to come out of that. So that's what he does. So who does he invite? Well, he invites the only people that will associate with him, other tax collectors, and other lowlifes, and other scoundrels, and other prostitutes, and other people that nobody else thinks very highly of. That's who he invites. All the scoundrels in town come to Levi's house. What a house party that had to be, right? Can you imagine? All of these crazy people in Levi's house, around the table, having a big meal together, and right in the middle of it is the Son of God reclining at the table. What a sight that had to be. Well, what was Jesus doing? He was enjoying dinner. He was having conversation. He was making friends. That's what he was doing. We know that because we find in Luke chapter seven, verse 34, that he gets a reputation. He becomes known as a a friend of tax collectors and a a friend of sinners. That becomes his reputation. Not necessarily in a good way by those who level the charge. He was known as a friend of sinners, a friend of tax collectors. Bruce Barton says this, he says Jesus wasn't accused of accepting sinners as friends, he was charged with befriending sinners, with intentionally befriending sinners. That was the charge, and that was the reality. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus go into a place like that? Why would he associate himself with people like that? Why would he recline and have drinks and have a meal and do all those things with people that were scum in their culture? I think he did it for the same reason that he chose to heal a leper. Because underneath the outside corruption, when he looked at people, he saw what was going on on the inside. He saw behind all the filth and the sin and the corruption that inside, that these were people. Human beings made in the image of God. And people mattered to him. And people should matter to us. He felt compassion toward them. So he has a meal with them. Man, this is one of those places in the Bible where I want more information, don't you? I want to know what happened at that dinner party. I want to know how many of those people came to Christ. I want to know what the conversation was. I'm going to ask when I get there. Not to Levi's house, but to heaven. That's what I'm talking about. You'd think that this tax collector being saved and becoming a righteous man would have been celebrated all throughout town, right? Right? Well, it wasn't. Verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Ah, oh, the religious elites are grumbling. They're grumbling. You know what grumbling is? you grumble grumbled before, haven't you? He's grumbled. They can't believe this guy's doing this. They cannot believe what he's doing. They don't engage Jesus, they engage his disciples. And they say to the disciples, why is it that you're eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners they can't believe it how can somebody who claims he's the messiah how can somebody who claims to be able to forgive sins how can somebody who has the authority to heal and claims that he's from god sit at a table with defiled filthy scoundrels like these people never in a million years would these men have dreamed of doing something like that never And that culture having a meal with somebody Was a lot more significant than it is necessarily in our culture. It was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of fellowship. And Jesus is doing this with these kind of people. Never would these religious leaders have done that. They were spiritual snobs, they were religious elites. They had devised this whole system of of righteousness where it was all an external list of do's and don'ts and they could do the do's better than anybody else and they could don't the don'ts better than anybody else and so they saw themselves as religious elites bigger and better than everybody else and the only people worthy of their time and energy and effort were people who were trying to do the same thing. So people who were just living in outright sin were repulsive to them, they hated them. These men hated these tax collectors. had no compassion for them. They irritated them. They agitated them, infuriated them. They quarantined themselves from them. We never had dinner with them. And the sad reality is, in this whole picture of the story, the most lost people in the whole picture are the religious elites. They're the most lost. They're the furthest from God in the whole picture. They're self-righteous people, puffed up with spiritual pride. They had believed a lie about themselves that they were righteous when in fact they were vile sinners. Every bit as bad as a tax collector. And say, here, here, here's the reality. And this is what Jesus is trying to show and it's what Luke is trying to show. God simply will not save people who refuse to admit that they're lost. And these religious leaders absolutely would never admit that they were lost they saw themselves as righteous and they can't believe that Jesus would associate with people like that and Jesus hears about it and he says this those who are well have no need for a physician but those who are sick I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance Jesus is beautiful isn't he he always has the right word at the right moment he uses a beautiful illustration doesn't he it's a medical illustration He simply makes something so clear that it's obvious to anyone who hears it. Those who are well have no need for a physician. You know that to be true, right? How many of you wake up on Monday or Tuesday morning and you make an appointment at your doctor's office and you go to your doctor and you sit in the waiting room and you wait till they call your number and you go back to your doctor and the doctor says, what's wrong with you? And you say, nothing. I feel great. Nobody does that, right? Why do you not go to the doctor when you're healthy? Because healthy people don't need a doctor who goes to a doctor sick people go to a doctor people who know they're sick who know that they need help with their sickness go to a doctor and jesus says it's sick people that i've come to help but it was an indictment on these religious leaders he's saying to them you 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 fancy yourself as religious doctors shouldn't shouldn't a doctor hang around with with sick people occasionally I mean, you're religious doctors. What's wrong with you? Are you the kind of doctors who isolate yourself from sick people? What kind of doctor does that? What kind of doctor is willing to stand at a distance and diagnose but has absolutely no desire to bring the cure? What kind of doctor will tell a person that he has a disease and then refuse to give him the medicine for it? A pathetic, sad, sick doctor does that. And a pathetic, sad, sick religious leader does that. the reality of the matter was the ones who claimed to be well were the sickest of them all and Jesus says at the end of this here's why I've come i've come to call sick people to repentance it's the clearest it's the clearest statement we have from Jesus about his mission i did not come to call the righteous i did not come for people who think they're good i came for sinners who know they're bad? I came for the Levis of the world. I came for anybody who look at themselves in the mirror, admit their sin, and confess it and turn like Levi did. What a remarkable thing. It's not hard to understand, isn't it? It's not hard to understand. We make it hard. We make it hard, but it's not hard. The mission of Jesus was to find sinners and to bring them to repentance. That should be the mission of everybody who follows Jesus as well. But so many in the church get sidetracked on so many other things other than that. Let me wrap this up by just asking a couple of questions. Look, Luke is trying to show us a lot here in this encounter with Levi. He wants us to understand that Jesus came to save sinners, not good people, so if you're here today and you look at yourself in the mirror and you know you're not a good person, you look around and you think everybody else is good, but you're not, then you know what? You're precisely the kind of person that Christ has come to save. That, that, in fact, makes you most highly qualified to hear Jesus say, come follow me. The other thing he wants us to hear is that there's no sinner that's too far, too far gone that he can't be forgiven by Jesus. Matthew would have been the worst sinner anybody could have identified in that town and here Luke is telling us that Jesus came to save the worst sinner you could imagine and you know who the worst sinner that you know is I know who the worst sinner I know is the worst sinner I know is me I know my sin I don't know yours but I know mine and I'd be willing to bet you're the best sinner you're the worst sinner that you know too the question is will you admit it Will you confess it to the Lord? Will you bow before the Lord Jesus and ask him to forgive you and commit to following after him? And just as a warning to wrap it up, self-righteous spiritual snobbery will condemn a soul to hell faster than just about anything. A person can be very spiritual. A person can know a lot about the Bible. A person can be involved in various kinds of ministry activity and be a spiritually self-righteous snob, just like these Pharisees and Sadducees, and they can find themselves in an eternal hell because they refuse to admit that they need Christ. They refuse to humble themselves before him. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we marvel that you would come to save sinners We marvel that you would come to find people like Levi. And if you can save Levi, you can save anybody. If you're willing to call a man that that vile to be your disciple, and you're willing to accept him when he gets up and walks out of his tax booth and follows after you, then there's not a person in this room that you'll refuse if they'll get up out of their sin, renounce it, and follow after you. I pray, Lord, that there's somebody in this room who's not simply done that in their life, that right now would be that moment, that they would see in you a friend of sinners, a friend of tax collectors, one who sees beyond their sin and sees into their soul and cares about them because you've made them in your image, that they would see in you a Savior who's willing to wipe the slate clean and give them a fresh start, and that they would get up and come after you today whatever the cost. I'm mindful, Lord, that there may be somebody in this room that you're calling to ministry, somebody that needs to, that already knows you as Lord and Savior, but somebody that needs to get up out of the career path that they're on and needs to follow after you in a different path. Somebody you're calling to be a pastor, somebody you're calling to be a missionary, somebody you're calling to serve in some other facet of career ministry. And maybe they're afraid and understand what that means or what it looks like. Help them, Lord, this morning to trust in you, to make that call and like Levi to follow you whatever it takes and to trust you to get them where they need to be and to equip them every step along the way. And Lord, for any who might be struggling today with spiritual elitism, with religious pride, feeling puffed up in their own spirituality and their own self-righteousness. I pray that in these moments you would humble them, that you would give each and every one of us a holy fear of ever falling into that kind of a zone in our life where we see ourselves as holy and we look down our nose at other people that we think are bad sinners and we begin to judge and we begin to drive wedges between us and them. Oh God, give us a heart like Jesus that we'd be willing to befriend a sinner, that they might come to know you. Lord, we pray that you would do these things in us and help us for your sake and your glory alone. Amen.